Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. And this week we have a afterlife episode. Is that a question or? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Um, But before we get to that, let's play a trailer. Hi, I'm Prader Yarmarud. And I'm Zarina. And we'd like to introduce you to Administrism. What is Administrism? As an occultist, for years I felt the universe directing me towards a practice that was ecologically based with a foundation laid out by cultures untouched by the influence of what's become modern Western society. With labels like shamanism and neo-shamanism carrying too much uncomfortable post-colonial baggage, I've decided to take my own approach. Join Yara and me as we research and develop a magical system where we recognize our place in nature with all the life that surrounds us. We want to share with you our journey into a paradigm that incorporates ritual and ecology, anthropology and metaphysics, biology, and the occult. Using ethically sourced material, historical accounts, ethnographic records, and our own personal experience, we want to share our discoveries as we watch administrism grow in an organic blend of traditional spirituality, modern science, and a dash of homesteading, without all the connotations associated with labels like shamanism. We hope that by listening to how administrism sprouts in us, it will plant its seeds into your own practice. This way, you can find your own balance between magic and nature. Because the world needs room for both. And don't forget, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All our Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows are amazing, and you guys should check them all out. And our website is up and running. Yay! It's tgmpodcastnetwork.com. Dot com. Dot com. And Dave, why don't you take it away? The afterlife is a concept that the essential part of an individual's identity or their stream of consciousness continues to live after death of the physical body. Depending on the traditions we are digging into, it may be a partial element or the entire soul or spirit, and it may confer personal identity or it may not. In most but not all views, this continued existence takes place in a spiritual realm, where one may be immediately reborn into the world again, or maintain living on in that realm, usually with no conscious memory of the past life. 
This isn't exclusively a religious concept, but can also derive from esotericism and metaphysics. We thought it would be neat to dig into some of these beliefs held by cultures at various points in history, some pre-Christianity and some post-Christianity. Uh, but we're not really digging into the quote-unquote Abrahamic religions, because we are almost certain there is a church, mosque, or synagogue close enough to you that you could just go in and ask. <laughs> not to mention a lot of people, I think, have a pretty decent understanding of the Abrahamic religions afterlife. I mean, I think the only one that's really different from the, th the three of them would be Judaism. And that's just simply because there isn't a heaven or hell particularly. It's just dead space where you go and wait until the uh, end times. But so it's like waiting at the DMV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Without the cool uh, little bit elevator, elevator music. So Grab your number <laughs> and wait in line. 1,265,000. Damn, this is going to take forever. So let's start with some of the most ancient ones. In the Women's Dictionary of Symbols and Sacred Objects, Barbara G. Walker writes, A generally accepted view of the universe in antiquity was the doctrine of the planetary spheres, conceived as great crystal domes or inverted bowls nested inside one another over the earth, turning independently of one another at various rates and emitting the music of the spheres with their motions. The theory was evolved to explain the apparently erratic movement of planets against the background of the fixed stars. Reading from the innermost sphere outward, arranging them according to the days of the week, they were the spheres of the moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, and the sun. Outermost was the eighth sphere, the Empyrean, the home of fixed spheres and the ultimate god, the highest heaven. As a corollary to this theory, it was also assumed that there were seven nether spheres descending under the earth, the seven hells to which Demuzi and Ainanya, or Tammuz and Ishtar, journeyed, whose seven gates were guided by the seven Anunnaki or Maskim, the nether counterparts of the planetary spirits. According to an Akkadian magic tablet, they proceed from the ocean depths, from the hidden retreat. From this ancient idea of the seven nether spheres, Dante took his vision of the descending circles of hell. Hell, hell, hell. Hell yeah, brother! The ancient Mesopotamian underworld was a cavern located underground where inhabitants continued a shadowy version of their life on Earth. This had many names depending on the text. Kur, Urkala, Cuckoo, Arali, Kegel, Eker, Ganzir, and in Akkadian, Ursatru. The ruler of this underworld is Ereshkigal and Nergal. Sometimes Ereshkigal is known as Urkala, uh, like how the ruler of the Greek underworld is often called Hades, the name of the kingdom. In the ancient Sumerian poem, Ainana's Descent into the Underworld, Ereshkigal is described as Ainana's older sister. The two main myths involving Ereshkigal are the story of Ainana's descent to the underworld and the story of Ereshkigal's marriage to the god Nergal. Nergal! In, <laughs> in some myths, Inkigal is the ruler. 
The underworld itself is usually located even deeper below than the Abzu, the body of fresh water which the ancient Mesopotamians believed lay beneath the earth. This underworld was believed to have seven gates to which a soul needed to pass. All seven gates were protected by bolts. The god Neti is the gatekeeper. At night, the sun god Utu was believed to travel through the underworld as he journeyed to the east in preparation for the sunrise. On his way through the underworld, Utu was believed to pass through the garden of the sun god. That would be Adina of Eridu or the Garden of Eden, which contained trees that bore precious gems as fruit. In the Sumerian hymn Inanna and Utu, Utu's sister Inanna begs her brother Utu to take her to Kerr so that she may taste the fruit of the trees that grow there, which will reveal to her all the secrets of sex. Utu complies and incur. Inanna tastes the fruit and becomes knowledgeable of sex. It's all about sex, baby. During the Akkadian period, which was about 2334 to 2154 uh, BCE, Arishkagul's role as the ruler of the underworld was assigned to Nergal, the god of death. The Akkadians attempted to harmonize this dual rulership of the underworld by making Nergal Arishkagul's husband. Nergal is the deity most often identified as Arishkagul's husband, so it could be thought that Gugalana is the first husband of Arishkagul, the queen of the underworld. Nergal was also associated with forest fires and identified with the fire god Gibel. He was also associated with fevers, plagues, and war. In myths, he often causes destruction and devastation. Ninazu is the son of Arishkagul and the father of Ningishida and associated with the underworld. He was mostly worshipped in Eshnuna uh, during the 3rd millennium BCE, but he was later superseded by the Huranian storm god Tishpak. Ningishzida is a god who normally lives in the underworld, son of Ninazu, and his name may be etymologically derived from a phrase meaning Lord of the Good Tree. In the Sumerian poem, The Death of Gilgamesh, the hero Gilgamesh dies and meets Ningishida, along with Damuzid, uh, in the underworld. Ningishida was associated with the constellation Hydra, the sea serpent. In some depictions, he's a serpent with a human head. The death of vegetation is associated with the travel to the underworld of Ningishida. Dumuzid, later known as the Corrupted Tammuz, um, Geshtinana is an agricultural god and sister of Dumuzid. When Dumuzid is taken away by the Gala, Ainana decrees that Dumuzid and Geshtinana will alternate places in the underworld every six months. When in the underworld, Geshtinana serves as a Reshkugal scribe. Lugal Ira and Meslamtaia are a set of twin gods who were worshipped in the village of Kisiga, located in northern Babylonia. They were regarded as guardians of doorways, and they may have originally been envisioned as a set of twins guarding the gates of the underworld, 
who chop the dead into pieces as they passed through. Ouch. What we know collectively as Gemini was named after them. Nettie is the gatekeeper of the underworld. In Inanna's descent into the underworld, he leads Inanna through the seven gates of the underworld, removing one of her garments at each gate, so that when she comes before Ereshkigal, she is naked and symbolically powerless. It's like strip poker, but <laughs> different. Yeah, <laughs> much different. Belit Siri is a Ketonic underworld goddess who was thought to record the names of the deceased as they entered the underworld. Seven Galas, or Galas, could leave the underworld to pursue mortals, to drag them down into Kerr. These are the beings which took Dumuzid. Lamash, too, was thought to be the cause of miscarriages and blood clots, believed to be the daughter of An, and has been described as riding her boat along the river in the underworld. Pazuzu, son of Hambi, had power over Lamashtu and could force her back to the underworld. He also protected against the winds of pestilence. In the 20th century, Pazuzu got a bad rap, as he was blamed for possessing Reagan in the film The Exorcist, and other artists have used him as depictions of demons in their work. But according to his mythology, he is considered to be an evil spirit, but he drives and frightens away other evil spirits, therefore protecting humans against plagues and misfortunes. So he's like a Dexter. He he only attacks only other kills the, demons. The bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> Just I mean, before we get any further, I mean, obviously, you can see the connections to other mythologies. Yeah. Yeah. And I got as you're reading na- like the name and what they do. I'm, oh, that's this one. Oh, that's that. Oh, that's this one. Oh, oh, yeah, that's this well, one. like in the beginning when he she wants to go to hell so she can taste the fruit and then it awakens her sexuality. I mean, that's Adam and Eve. Oh, sure. With a twist. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. fruits of all knowledge in the sun god's garden. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in fact, I know we've probably, I'm, I didn't mention it here, but in other episodes we've mentioned that they're Adina of Eridu was right between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is the exact description of the Garden of Eden in the biblical book of Genesis. Yeah. So, All right. The afterlife served an important role in the ancient Egyptian religion. Its beliefs are one of the earliest known in recorded history. They thought when the body died, parts of the soul known as Ka, or body double, and the Ba, or personality, would go to the kingdom of the dead. Kingdom of the dead. While the soul dwelt in the fields of Aru. The fields of Aru are alive with the sound of dead people. Da, da, da. Osiris, god of fertility, agriculture, the afterlife, the dead, resurrection, life, and vegetation, demanded work as payment for the protection he provided. Like, as a whole, that's like an odd resume. But, I mean, it fits together, fertility, agriculture, life, and vegetation. But the afterlife and the death and the resurrection seems like that would be a whole other job description. Now, now what <laughs> I saw in this was Osiris is like the embodiment of Hades and Persephone. 
Yeah. Or Inanna and Tammuz, where one god plays the role of two. Yeah. Well, like from what I remember of my Egyptian mythology, is he was originally the god of agriculture and life and vegetation, and is killed by his brother. Yeah. And uh, resurrected by Anubis and Isis. Or I, yeah. Yeah, Isis. Isis. And then took over the underworld. Oh. And then took care, then added the, you know, death and resurrection. And so it was like that midlife dive change. Dive? <laughs> midlife, midlife, you know, life, life change. He got fired, <laughs> but then promoted. At the same know, time. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe it was Seth that killed him, his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he slept with Isis. Yeah. And had Anubis. And then Seth was upset because he tricked Isis into sleeping with her. <laughs> this is, sounds like Greek. Um, yeah. We're going to have yeah. to totally get into Egyptian mythology soon. It's really cool. Arriving at one's reward in the afterlife was a demanding task, requiring a sin-free heart and the ability to recite the spells, passwords, and formula of the Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead! Book of the Dead! In the Hall of Two Truths, the departed's heart was weighed against the shoe feather of truth and justice, which was taken from the headdress of Mot, goddess of truth, balance, order, harmony, law, morality, and justice. If the heart was lighter than the feather, the deceased could pass on. But if it were heavier, they would be devoured by Amit, a.k.a. Devourer of the Dead, a.k.a. Eater of Hearts, a.k.a. Great of Death. A creature with the four quarters of a lion, the hind quarters of the hippo, and the head of a crocodile. And once the heart was devoured, the dead person was not allowed to continue their journey towards Osiris and immortality. That's when the soul became restless forever. Forever. And those three animals were the three most, or the three animals that make up Amit are the three animals that caused the most death of humans in the Egyptian area. <laughs> The lion, yeah. the hippo, and the crocodile. Yeah. Which is why makes those were a lot chosen. Of sense. Um, there's not a lot of forgiveness in the uh, Egyptian afterlife. Nope. Yeah. There's really not. Although, I, I mean, Only I don't know. Only those pure of heart make it through. Yeah. I bet it kind of gives them a reason why there might be spirits and ghosts walking around in their um, villages. Yeah. Their tombs. I'm sure we're familiar with mummification. This allowed the dead to live again in the fields of Yulu and accompany the sun on its daily ride across the world and then through the underworld lighting it and being reborn again in the overworld. Which is a lot like the uh, one we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, the, so the Egyptian underworld was called Duat, Tuat, Akert, Amenti, or Neterkertit, depending on the source. According to the Amduit, the underworld consists of 12 regions, signifying the 12 hours of the sun god's journey through it. 
battling a pep in order to bring order back to the earth in the morning. His rays illuminated the duat throughout the journey. This revived the dead who occupied the underworld and let them enjoy life after death in that hour of the night when they were in the presence of the sun god, after after which they went back to their sleep, waiting for the god's return the following night. I mean, that sounds pretty nice. I mean, 23 hours of sleep, one hour of doing stuff. I could, I could get on that train. I'm thinking like that's kind of also along the lines of like um, how the sun actually works. Like they had kind of a concept there. Because, I mean, when it's sunny here, it's dark on the other end. Sure. So yeah. like they actually kind of fit with the concept of how it actually happens. Unless you're a flat earther, in which case, go find another podcast. Um, <laughs> which I, I don't know if the Egyptians b- thought the Earth rotated around the sun, or if the Earth rotated around the sun, or if the sun rotated yeah. around the Earth. Um, I mean, they definitely built their pyramids and like stuff, or their towns and stuff, using st- the stars and the sun and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I would think they had at least. I would think they at least had some kind of idea. Some kind of concept. They might not, I mean, yeah, they might not have known exactly how it worked, but they had the idea of the sun the sun's disappears, here for, yeah. and then it shows back up over here, and then it um, goes across. Which would make think, so. them think, I mean, would make you understand, or make them understand the idea of, okay, if it's not up here where we can see it, then it's in the underworld. Yeah. And then, I mean, that, that makes sense to me, like, why that would be the, the other thought process. Yeah. Sure. Now, likely, there was never a single uniform conception of the duat. The Book of Gates, the Book of Caverns, the Coffin Text, the Amduit, and the Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Each described duat differently. The geography of duat is similar in outline to the world the Egyptians knew. There are realistic features like rivers, islands, fields, lakes, mounds, and caverns. But there were also fantastic lakes of fire, walls of iron, and trees of turquoise. In the Book of Two Ways, one of the coffin texts, there is even a map-like image of the duat. Duat, duat. <laughs> the you want pro- me to do what? <laughs> the, but the primary purpose of these books is not to lay out a geography, but to describe a succession of rites of passage which the dead would have to pass to reach eternal life. The Duat was also a residence for various gods, including Osiris, Anubis, Toth, Horus, Hathor, or is it Hathor? Hathor. Hathor. No. Hathor, I think. Hathor. Yeah. And Mot, who all appear to the dead soul as it makes its way toward judgment. How you doing? Welcome. Welcome. So this Welcome. this is kind of their version of the the underworld journeying and stuff. The mm. descent into the underworld, the Dante's Inferno, if you will. I just like how like all religions or all mythologies tend to have that same kind of story in some way or another. Yeah. yeah. In Greek mythology, Hades is the king of the underworld a place where souls live after death. The Greek god Hermes would escort the souls of people to the underworld called Hades, or the House of Hades, where they would be left on the bank of the River Styx, 
the river between life and death. The ferryman Charon would take the soul across the river to Hades, providing that the soul had gold, that is. Once across, the soul would be judged by Iacus, Rhadamantus, and King Minos. The soul would then be sent to Elysium, Tartarus, or Asphodel Fields. Elysium was a place of green fields, valleys, and mountains where everyone was content and peaceful, always under the glow of the sun. Tartarus was for blasphemers, rebellious, and consciously evil people. The asphodel fields were for all kinds of human souls, those whose evilness equaled their goodness, and those who were indecisive in life, and those who were not judged. So that's where I would be. (laughs) Those that sinned and went to Tartarus would be burned in lava or stretched on racks. So that's the Christian hell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be Elysium would be heaven, uh, Tartarus would be hell, and then the Asphodel Fields would be like purgatory. purgatory. Yeah, sure. But in between, like you're not good, you're not bad, you're just here. Yeah. You couldn't make up your mind then, we couldn't make up the mind now. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, you decide what's for dinner. Like this is McDonald's. <laughs> I ain't going there. The Norse people had a few different afterlife realms. Valhalla, Valhalla, where half the warriors who died in battle joined the god Odin, who rules over a majestic hall called Valhalla in Asgard. The other half joined the goddess Freya in a great metal known as Folkvanger. Freya. While in Valhalla, the souls of the people who died in battle, known as Ein Herjar, Eat their fill of the beast, Samrimner, which resurrects every night while Valkyries bring them mead. Valkyries are a host of female figures that chooses who dies and lives in battle. They then select who goes to Valhalla and who goes to Folkvanger. So they're kind of like angel angels. Yeah. Angels yeah. of death. I mean, they were normally pictured with... Uh, if they if they weren't wearing like didn't have wings, they were riding like Pegasus, like winged horses. And... Yeah, yeah. The Ein Herjar prepare daily for the events of Ragnarok, where they will take place in an immense battle at the field of Vigdor between the gods and the forces of Surtur. Surturs are Jotun, a type of entity contrasted with gods and other non-humans, like dwarves or elves. Before the hall stands the golden tree Gladier, which bears golden red leaves. The hall's ceiling is thatched with golden shields. Various creatures live around Valhalla, such as a stag and a goat, that I'm not going to try to pronounce the names of, <laughs> which stand atop Valhalla, and consume the foliage of the tree, Leraor, sometimes called Yagdrazil. This is essentially the world tree. Well, that um, battle sounds like it would be like God and his angels versus the devil and his demons. It is. This is the one, uh, I think, in our dragons episode, when Jormungandr, the 
world serpent lets go of his tail. That's one of the battles that Thor has to fight in Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Folkvanger is a meadow ruled over by the goddess Freyr. My puppy. And according to the Prozedda, within Folkvanger is Freya's hall, Sesrumnir. I'd go hang out with Freya. <laughs> there is also Hell, H-E single hockey stick, which means <laughs> the covered hall. <laughs> and Nifhel, which means the dark or misty hell. Hell is ruled over by a being named Hell. It's like it's like a pattern. Hades rolling Hades and Urkel. In the late Icelandic stories, various descriptions and various figures are described as being buried with items, which will facilitate their journey to hell after death. It's kind of like the Egyptians who buried with gold and statues and mm-hmm. food <clears throat> and I'm all. Saying that. They would always, at least all like Nordic warriors would always be buried with their weapons in their hands so they can battle. Mm-hmm. And hell is a hell is like an underworld realm. In one poem it states that it will play an important role in Ragnarok. The Volva states that a crowing quote sooty red cock from the halls of hell unquote is one of the three that signal the beginning of Ragnarok. One more cock is in Jotunheimer, the land of the Jotuns. The final cock being in Valhalla. That sounds very similar to the Book of Revelations in the Bible. But it's for the four horsemen, and like that's the first sign is. Uh, oh, I thought you were gonna say the like the trumpets blowing on at Zion and yeah, the trumpets I mean, blowing in hell and very the trumpets blowing in. Uh, oh, there was another place. I don't. Maybe Jerusalem. Maybe. It's just really interesting to me. It, ma- it makes it easier to see where the stories came from for the Bible, because these were first. Yeah. So. In one story, hell is beneath one of the three roots of the world tree. The others, the other roots go to Frost Jotnar, another Jotun realm, and the third to mankind. Now, some other Jotuns were like giants and trolls and um, other things like... Yeah, ice giants. And The the actual father of Loki was a Jotun. Mm -hmm. And Niffel appears in some Eddic poems and could be interpreted as the lowest level of hell, a realm of perpetual cold and ice. Together, Niffel and hell are Niffelheim, the world of mist. So they're kind of like the reverse. Ours, they're ours. The other ones, it's all hot, and you're going to... I guess that would make sense with their location. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> probably like the worst time of the year is the coldest days of the, the year, so... Now, one realm of hell described in the Divine Comedy was a plane of ice, but I forget which level it was. I think it was the one that Metis... Mephaphrophytuses, whatever that long ass name is, <laughs> what what it is it? Do y'all know? No. I have no idea. Don't remember. <laughs> so this this location um, is used in one of the creation stories in which the frozen realm got near to the fire realm, and its waters mixed, a formed a creating stream. 
Hell is also the name of a goddess who receives a portion of the dead, those that did not die a heroic or noble death. In some tales, she is the daughter of Loki, and she rules over vast mansions with many servants, then plays a key role in the attempted resurrection of the god Baldur. The dead that preside in hell carry on with a normal afterlife, doing the same things they did in life. Eating, drinking, sleeping, fighting, and fucking. Oh yeah! (laughs) This isn't a place of bliss or torment. It's really just a continuation of life in the afterlife. Yeah. Like a purgatory where you're just... It's all the same. In Old Norse literature, Helvigr describe the underworld journeys of gods and humans to obtain knowledge or recover spirits. In the Prosetta, after Christianity had arrived in Iceland, the scholar Snorri Snorlison, I messed that up, Snorri Sturlison described the plate of the goddess hell is called hunger, her servant slow and lazy, the threshold of her door stumbling block, her bed illness, and her curtains bleak misfortune. Most of his work has been described as almost purposely comical. Okay. Say also in, um, what do they call it? The, uh, 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 it would almost be like if we wrote a Christian tale and we were like, yeah, in hell every night they serve deviled ham. And deviled eggs, and <laughs> just made it real campy sounding. That's <laughs> devil, that's devil, that's devil. how that's how Snorri's work is. It's very, it's very much like that. I'm saying if I, I mean I don't know a whole lot about Norse mythology, but I want to say that Nefelheim is where the giant wolf of the dead resides, in in the land of the mist. Oh, and very cool. That ties in. I could be a little bit wrong, but I, I believe that's right. Because then that kind of would almost tie in with like Cerebus and um, the hippo crocodile. Yeah, the hippo yeah. crocodile one. What was that called? Yeah. The, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. The devourer of hearts. <laughs> I can't remember. Eater of hearts. The uh, Amit, I think. Yeah, Amit, yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. In Celtic mythology, the Otherworld is the realm of the deities and possibly of the dead. In Gaelic and Britonic mythology, these are supernatural realms associated with everlasting youth, beauty, health, abundance, and joy. Various mythical heroes have visited these areas, usually by going into ancient burial mounds or caves, going under water, or across the western sea. In Welsh mythology, it is commonly called Anun, or Avalon, in the Arthurian legends. In Irish mythology, the most common names are Chirnanog, Moimel, Emenablach, and Tecdun. Time moves differently in these realms, and it is the dwelling place of the Tuatha-Dedanon and their descendants, amongst others. The festivals of Samhain and Beltane are liminal times when contact with the Otherworld is more likely. In the tales, the Otherworld dwellings are the She, which means mounds. The beings therein are referred to as Ishi. 
When the Milesians defeated the Tuatha-de-Danon in the Book of Invasions, they both agreed the Milesians would take the above ground, and the Tuatha-de-Danon would take the Shi and the other world. In Irish voyaging tales known as Imramas, uh, typically a beautiful young otherworld woman approaches the hero and sings about the land of happiness. Oh, it's so happy! And some she offers an apple. Would you like this apple? Or the promise of her love. Hey, you want to fuck? <laughs> in exchange for help in battle. I think she sounds just like that, too. <laughs> yeah. You want an apple? Or how about a fuck? <laughs> Your you choice. fuck the apple? <laughs> how about fuck and the apple? <laughs> fuck me and the apple. <laughs> <laughs> And this journey commonly takes place by a vessel, which may be a boat, a chariot, a white horse. Uh, The hero returns after what he thinks to be a short time, only to find he's been away for hundreds of years. Myths play a big part in these tales, either in the arrival of these underworld visitors or upon the agreement of fulfilling the quest. You know where uh, mist and fog also play a role? Time, time slips. slips. That's true. Bum, bum, bum. Maybe time trips. Time trips. Time slips are fairy. Sure. Uh, the Ishi. Ishi. Uh, the little plank people. pranks. The Fey folk. In every one of these stories I've ever read, the hero is forever changed by his contact with the other world. Now, Tech Dunn, which has been translating at the House of Dawn or House of the Dark One, the souls of the dead travel to here and maybe remain there, or it's a stopping place along the way to the other world or before reincarnation. The beliefs among the Celts were as diverse then as they are among Celtic Reconstructionalists now. Dawn is often portrayed as an ancestor of the Gaels, the Milesians, and the god of the dead. In Welsh mythology, Anun was ruled by Aron, in the first branch of the Mabinogion. Pluil, prince of Dyfed, offends Aron by baiting his hounds on a stag that Aron's white hounds with red ears had brought down. It's pretty common for animals from the other world to be right, red, or a combination of the two. After this, Plil trades places with Aron for a year and defeats his enemy Hafgen. While Aron rules Dyfed, each disguised as the other so no one knows the difference. He earns Aron's gratitude from defeating Hafgen and uniting the kingdoms of Anun into one, and also by laying chastedly with Aron's wife. On the return, Plil becomes known as Pinanun the head, ruler, or chief of Anun. In the Arthurian legends, Anun is ruled over by Guan Apnath, and in the Perithu Anun, uh, found in the Book of Talisine, King Arthur travels to this otherworld realm, departing with three boatloads of men, suggesting the entrance to the underworld is on an island. In the poem, Anun is also called Mound or Fairy Fortress, Four-peaked or four-cornered fortress, and glass fortress. 
The continental Celtic people known as the Gauls had an entirely different view of the cosmos, which they separated into three parts. Albios was the upper world. Bitu was the world of the living people. Excuse you? Maybe it's Bitu. <laughs> Bitu? B-I-T-U. Bitch, you best be listening. <laughs> and Budnos, or Budnos, was the lower world. And according to the Roman poet Lucan, the Gaulish Druids believed that the soul went to another world, which the poet called Orbis Alius, before reincarnation. The Byzantine scholar Procopius of Caesarea described the other world of the ancient Gauls sometime in the 6th century CE. He said it was thought that the land of the dead lay west of Great Britain. The continental Celtic myths told that once the soul of the dead had left their bodies, they traveled to the northwestern coast of Gaul and took a boat toward Britain. When they crossed the channel, the souls went to the homes of the fishermen and knocked desperately at their doors. The fishermen then went out of their houses and led the souls to their destination in ghostly ships. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And and the Gauls, that's would be modern day France. Yeah. And the Milesians are the modern day Gaelics, the Irish. In Tibetan Buddhism, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Book of the Dead. Explains the intermediate state of humans between death and reincarnation thusly. The deceased will find the bright light of wisdom, which shows a straightforward path to move upward and leave the cycle of reincarnation. There are various reasons why the deceased do not follow that light. Some had no briefing about the intermediate state in the former life. Others only used to follow their basic instincts like animals. And some have fear, which results from foul deeds in the former life or from insistent haughtiness. In the intermediate state, the awareness is very flexible, so it is important to be virtuous, adopt a positive attitude, and avoid negative ideas. Ideas which are rising from subconscious can cause extreme tempers and cowing visions. In this situation, they have to understand that these manifestations are just reflections of the inner thoughts. No one can really hurt them, because they have no more material body. The deceased get help from different Buddhas to show them the path to the bright light. The ones who do not follow the path, after all, will get hints for a better reincarnation. They have to release the things and beings on which or whom they still hang from the life before. It is recommended to choose a family where the parents trust in the Dharma and to reincarnate with the will to care for the welfare of all beings. I probably agree of the ones we read most. That's probably the closest to the religion of Amy's afterlife yeah. beliefs. I find it real interesting where they talk about these stuff rising from the subconscious, which can cause extreme tempers and cowing visions, just from doing stuff like path working and uh, underworld journeying and things like that. Yeah. Uh, active imagination, they call it. It's dream state. Yeah. You know? In Hinduism, the Upanishads describe Purajanma, which could be thought of as reincarnation. 
The Bhagavad Gita, a section of the Mahabharata, talks extensively about the afterlife. Krishna says that just as a man discards his old clothes and wears new ones, the soul discards the old body and takes on a new one. The soul is indestructible through its cycles of birth and death until it reaches mukti, staying with supreme God forever, or moksha. The Garuda Purana deals with what happens to a person after death. The god of death Yama sends collectors to retrieve the soul to be presented for him at the time of body death. A record of each person's timings and deeds is kept with Yama's ledger, Chitragupta. Then they are punished or rewarded. That sounds a lot like um, what the angel of death collecting your soul and taking you to St. Peter who has the book that lists all your uh, good and bads and he either allows you into heaven or you fall to hell. <laughs> the soul or Atman reincarnates itself according to the deeds or karma performed from the last birth. While they are waiting to be reincarnated, the soul spends time in either Naraka to face punishment or in Swarga to earn rewards. Then they are sent back to a new body on earth. This cycle repeats until the ultimate power decides the Atman's journey is complete and they are ready for moksha or nirvana, the ultimate goal of a self-realized soul. The Garuda, per- the Garuda Purana also describes in great detail the Narkas and the punishments carried out therein for bad karma. All right, that fits a little bit more with mine, too. Although I don't believe in, like, a bad place. I think you make your own hell. But, um, yeah, it that fits a lot with mine. Does it? So let's talk a little about spiritualism. Already? Edgar Case was an American clairvoyant that channeled his higher self and spoke out loud by people wrote down what he said. He would answer questions about healing, Reincarnation, dreams, afterlife, past lives, Atlantis, future predictions, all through these trances. According to him, the afterlife consisted of nine realms, equated with the nine planets of astrology. The first, symbolized by Saturn, was a level for the purification of the souls. The second, Mercury's realm, gives us the ability to consider problems as a whole. The third of the nine soul realms is ruled by earth and is associated with the earthly pleasures. The fourth realm is where we find out about love and is ruled by Venus. The fifth realm is where we meet our limitations and is ruled by Mars. The sixth realm is ruled by Neptune and is where we begin to use our creative powers and free ourselves from the material world. The seventh realm is symbolized by Jupiter which strengthens the soul's ability to depict situations, to analyze people and places, things and conditions. The eighth afterlife realm is ruled by Uranus and develops psychic ability. The ninth afterlife realm is symbolized by Pluto, the astronomical realm of the unconscious. This afterlife realm is a is a transient place where souls can choose to travel to other realms or other solar systems. It is the soul's liberation into eternity and is the realm that opens the doorway from our solar system into the cosmos point of view. 
Mainstream spiritualists tend to postulate a series of seven realms not unlike the nine realms, as the soul evolves moving higher and higher until it reaches the realm of spiritual oneness. The first realm is where troubled souls spend a long time before being compelled to move to realm two. The second realm is thought of as an intermediate transition between lower planes of life and higher perfect realms of the universe. The third level is for those who have worked with their karmic inheritance. The fourth level is for souls that teach and direct those on earth. The fifth level is where consciousness is left behind. On the sixth plane, the soul is aligned with the cosmic consciousness and has no sense of individuality. On the seventh, the soul transcends its sense of quote-unquote soulfulness, then reunites with the world soul and the universe. All right, that one also fits with mine. I mean, to me, just kind of make like of the ideas of this different levels of the afterlife where, Mm -hmm. you know, you die, you go to the first one until you're ready to move up and uh, over time and you just kind of start moving up. Mm -hmm. Until you fully ascend. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Some Wiccan and contemporary pagan sects describe an afterlife in the Summerland. Here, souls rest and recuperate from life in a period of reflection before reincarnation. This concept was inspired by Emanuel Swedenborg and featured in The Great Harmonia, a work by Andrew Jackson Davis. This spiritualist wrote that the Summerland is the pinnacle of human spiritual achievement in the afterlife, the highest level or sphere a spirit can hope to enter. The The theosophist C.W. Leadbeater also taught that those who were good in their previous earthly incarnations went to Summerland between incarnations. In Zoroastrism, the disembodied spirit lingers on earth for three days before descending to the kingdom of the dead, ruled by Yima. During those three days, righteous souls sit at the head of their body, chanting with joy, Wicked persons sit at their body's corpse, wailing and reciting a different chant. In Zoroastrianism, a righteous soul will encounter a beautiful maiden that is a personification of the soul's good thoughts, words, and deeds. A wicked person will encounter a very old naked hag. At the end of three days, the soul of the wicked are taken by Visaressa to Shinvat Bridge, where they walk into the darkness. In Yima's realm, which is a shadowy place, the soul receives its final judgment on the scales of justice. If the good deeds outweigh the bad, all is well. But if the bad deeds outweigh the good, the Chinvat bridge narrows down to the width of the blade, and a horrid hag pulls the soul down. Misfengatu is the place of the mixed ones. Uh, Their souls lead a gray existence, lacking sorrow and joy. This is where souls go if the this is where souls go if the scale is balanced during judgment. Kind of reminds me a lot of the kind of the Egyptian idea with the scales yeah. and weighing it against the yeah. feather. Honestly, um, that last part there made me think of My Little Ponies. And oh, yeah. um, how is it? Cutie Pie has the sister who's just very gray and 
doesn't really care one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 1901, a study was conducted by physician Duncan McDougall, where he sought to measure the weight lost by a human at the time of death. In an attempt to prove that the soul was material, tangible, and thus measurable. The results varied considerably with an average of 21 grams. The results MacDougall had were used as a reference for the 2003 film 21 Grams, which isn't really about his work at all. It's more just in reference to a dead soul. Yeah. Uh, now, his results have never been reproduced and are generally regarded as meaningless or to have no scientific merit. Daniel Kolak, a Croatian-American philosopher termed open individualism, it concludes that individual conscious experience is illusionary, and because consciousness continues after death in all conscious beings, you do not die. This position has been supported by physicists such as Erwin Schrodinger and Freeman Dyson. Now, John Hick raises questions regarding personal identity in the book Death and Eternal Life, using the example of a person ceasing to exist in one place, while an exact replica appears in another. If this replica had all the same experiences, traits, and physical appearances of the first person, we would all attribute the same identity to the second. Schrodinger, he's the one with the cat, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. I know stuff. You learned that from Big Bang Theory, didn't you? No, actually, I <laughs> learned it from a Truth and Justice podcast because Bill or Bob Ruff was using the term Schrodinger's cat instead of uh, Pavlov's dog. Yeah. And everybody had to get on to him for it. And like, totally different. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He uh, meant Pavlog's dog, but yeah, I was trying to I was trying to think if anything that he's ever spoken of would be in line with Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> so yeah, Pavlog. Yeah, dog he was meaning Pavlog's dog about a false confession. You know, every time she'd say something that the detective liked, he would reward it until she was just spitting out all kinds of false information. If you don't listen to Truth and Justice, I recommend it if you're a true crime buff. It's oh uh, yeah. Um, they try to dig deep into cases where somebody's been wrongfully convicted and help them uh, overturn their sentences. Yeah, and he, he digs deep, like yeah. I do, into all this um, like metaphysical and esoteric stuff, but he does it into like true crime. Yeah. He'll go through like door-to-door witness statements and stuff yeah. for an episode. He'll it's, go and interview witnesses. It's, yeah, and... it's very extensive, but yeah. That's a second recommendation from me. Mm -hmm. In the pantheistic model of process philosophy and theology, writers Charles Hartshorn and Alfred Whitehead reject the idea that the universe was made of substance, arguing that reality is composed of living experiences. According to Hartshorn, people do not experience subjective immortality in the afterlife, but they do have object immortality because their experiences live on forever in God, who contain all that was. While David Ray Griffin, another process philosopher, has written that people may have subjective experience until death. Philosophy is very interesting. 
it gives me a headache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can, yeah. Psychological proposals for the origin of a belief in an afterlife include cognitive disposition, cultural learning, and as an intuitive religious idea. In one study in 2015 with 123 children aged variously at 5, 7, and 10 years old, were able to recognize the ending of physical, mental, and perceptual activity in death, but were hesitant to conclude the ending of self, emotion, or will. In 2008, there was a large-scale study by the University of Southampton involving 2,060 patients from 15 different hospitals in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Austria. The awareness during resuscitation study examined the range of mental experiences in relation to death. They also tested the validity of conscious experiences for the first time using object markers to determine whether claims of awareness compatible with out-of-body with out-of-body experiences correspond with real or hallucinatory events. The results revealed that 40% of those that survived were aware during the time that they were clinically dead before their hearts were restarted. One patient also had a verified out-of-body experience, but the markers were not in place in the room. 80% of patients did not survive. Dr. Parnia, in an interview, stated, The evidence thus far suggests that in the first few minutes after death, consciousness is not annihilated. Sounds like the movie <clears throat> Flatliners. Yeah. <laughs> the, second note, the second phase, known as Aware 2, was set to be completed in September of 2020, but I have no details. It either was not conducted or the results have not been published yet. Studies have been done on the phenomena of near-death experiences, where experiencers commonly report being transported to a different realm or plane of existence. Coupled with this is usually a lasting positive after-effect on most experiencers. Um, I remember watching... Probably Unsolved Mysteries or something like that when I was younger. And they did an episode on um, near-death experiences. And in that, they actually, they took, you know, those signs that have like the scrolling words. And they would put them up in like top corners of operating rooms on top of shelves where it couldn't be seen from the ground. And then they would ask the people who experienced near-death experiences if they could tell them what was on the sign. And most oh, of them cool. could. Oh, wow. Which was interesting to me. Yeah. According to the University of Virginia School of Medicine website, Dr. Bruce Grayson is the Chester Carlson Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neo-Behavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. That's a hell of a title. Oh, it was even longer. I cut some of it off. Dr. <laughs> Grayson's interest in near-death experiences began just a few months after graduating from medical school when he treated an unconscious patient in the emergency room who stunned him the next morning with an account of leaving her body. 
that event challenged his beliefs about the mind and the brain and ultimately led him on a journey to study near-death experiences scientifically, leading to more than a hundred publications in medical journals. He co-founded the International Association for Near-Death Studies, the IANDS, an organization to support and promote research into these experiences, and for 27 years edited the Journal of Near-Death Studies, the only scholarly journal dedicated to near-death research. Through his research, he has discovered common and universal themes in near-death experiences that go beyond neurophysiological or cultural interpretations, as well as patterns of consistent after-effects on individuals' attitudes, beliefs, values, and personalities. Although NDEs vary from one person to another, they often include sets features as the following. Feeling very comfortable and free of pain. A sensation of leaving the body, sometimes being able to see the physical body while floating above it. The mind functioning more clearly and more rapidly than us. A sensation of being drawn into a tunnel or darkness. A brilliant light, sometimes at the end of the tunnel. A sense of overwhelming peace, well-being, or absolute unconditional love. A sense of having access to unlimited knowledge. A life review or recall of important events in the past a preview of future events yet to come, encounters with deceased loved ones or with other beings that may be identified as religious figures. So while these features are commonly reported, many NDEs differ from this pattern and include other elements. For example, some near-death experiences might be frightening or distressing rather than peaceful. We are interested in hearing about all kinds of near-death and similar experiences and in studying their effect upon persons who have them. The cause of NDEs are complex and not fully known. While many medical and psychological explanations have been offered, they remain speculative and often fall short of explaining the entire phenomena. According to the website sharedcrossing.com, there is also a concept known as shared death experiences, a term coined by Dr. Raymond Moody in his 2009 book, Glimpses of Eternity. Prior to this, they were called deathbed visions, deathbed coincidences, or other end-of-life phenomena. Do, 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 do. The Shared Crossing Research Initiative, SCRI, is a not-for-profit collaboration with Santa Barbara's Family Therapy Institute. The mission of SCRI is to research end-of-life experiences and their therapeutic value for patients, their families, and caregivers. Shared death experiences, or SDEs, are profound experiences whereby one or more loved ones, caregivers, or even bystanders have reported sharing in a dying person's transition to the initial stages of an afterlife. Such experiences typically include the theme of a journey, as experiencers commonly report seeing or otherwise sensing dying patients or loved ones moving towards a destination, typically characterized as a transcendent light. 
SDEs are at the very heart of the shared crossing project, and it is the time-honored practices we offer in preparation for enabling SDEs that distinguish us from the other end-of-life organizations. Here are some types of shared death experiences along with personal stories. There's beside. That's SDEs that occur at the bedside of the dying person. Then I got this feeling. It was different from any other moment. I just knew that it was her time. You know, right when I said, I'm here, God's here, I felt light. I felt like the whole room was weightless. And I was weightless. And I saw her, and I saw her go towards this bright light. But I didn't see her face. It was like I saw something go towards and I knew it was her. And it was happening like really fast because later I was like, how long did that take for the whole thing to happen? And that was from Christina C. Another type of shared death experience is remote, which is... The majority of SDEs are reported by individuals who were physically distant from the dying patient or loved one at the time of death. One day after our visit, I had a dream that night. I was with her in her apartment. She was young, beautiful, and happy. Her sister was with us. I looked at the clock on her wall and it said 3 a.m. When I woke up, I knew she had passed. When I arrived at the facility, I asked one of the nurses about her and they said that she had died during the night. I asked him to look up the time of her passing. It was recorded as 3 a.m. That was from Sally G. I've heard of that one, like, that happening yeah. a lot. I've actually mm-hmm. had some relatives tell me stories like that. Yeah. All right. And another type of shared death experience is flyby. And that's a specific, that is a specific subset of remote SDEs. Flybys involve people feeling that they have been briefly visited by the spirit of the dying, en route to whatever lies beyond this world. Many flybys include personal messages of gratitude and love. I just had a profound shift happen, like this feeling of being with my father came to me. Not being with my father, you know. Earlier that year, here on the porch... But being with my father as it felt as a little boy, I just knew it was fine. Everything was fine. He was there with me. He was on to the next thing. Whatever what whatever that was. Whatever that is. I kind, that's from Carl P. I kind of experienced that with our grandfather. Uh, I got the phone call that he had passed. It was early morning. Um and I was just kind of laying there on the bed and I closed my eyes. And as soon as I closed my eyes, I saw him. And I, I cannot tell you exactly what the thing is he said. He, but he said, basically, he, I'm okay. And she'll always be my baby. And those were the... And then he just kind of was gone. Um, but that was, you know, just a few minutes, I'd say a few minutes, probably close to an hour after he died. But yeah. So I've kind of had that one. Thank you for sharing. There's also subtypes of shared death experiences and that's early and that's SDEs that occur 
shortly before the time of a death. There's delayed, which occurs shortly after the time of a death. And there's gradual, and those are ones that transpire over the course of one or more days. There's multiple experiencers, and that's SDEs reported by more than one caregiver or loved one around the death of a dying person. Some of the major features of a shared death experience is visions of the dying person, often appearing more younger or more vibrant, the appearance of a transcendent light, sensing an unseen presence, sensing unusual energies, changes in time and space, encounters with spirit beings, seeing the spirit leave the body, appearance of previously deceased loved ones, visions of otherworldly or heavenly realms, tunnels, gateways, and vortices, sudden onset of physical symptoms thought to correspond to those of a dying person at the time of death, life reviews involving the dying person. I wonder if that would be like having dreams about them like I used to do with dad right after he died. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially in psychology, because psychologists believe that dreams come from the unconscious, mm-hmm. uh, which communicates through uh, symbols to your conscious mind, which communicates through reason and language. Yeah. And a lot of psychologists take that one step further and say that we always dream. It's just the dreams that our consciousness remembers are the ones that it's trying to translate. Yeah. We brought along some personal stories of people that have had near-death experiences. I had an allergic reaction to something I ate. I passed out while I was splashing water on my face. At some point, my heart stopped and I got re- and got restarted while I was in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. I remember feeling of being sucked backwards extremely slowly, like being pulled through water, and this blackness faded in and out. At one point, it faded back in and I was staring out at a garden. It wasn't filled with flowers, just dust and patchy grass. There was a playground and a merry-go-round in the middle and two children running around it, a boy and a girl. It's difficult to describe, but I got the feeling that I could choose if I wanted to stay or leave. But every time I tried to go back, I was held in place. I went through all the reasons I wanted to go back. And when I told the presence I didn't want to abandon my mother, whatever held me finally got, finally let go. I snapped back, snapped back into my body. Heart had stopped for about six minutes. Whoa. Growing up, my father used to tell me of an experience he had while having open-heart surgery. The doctors had to stop his heart for about 20 to 30 minutes while they inserted a mechanical valve into his heart. At the time, he was in his early 20s and was involved in a lot of bad activity that he said says he is ashamed of now. Anyway, while my dad was dead, he said he was in a very dark place. And as he was wandering around, wandered around, he started running into very scary people who were deformed and screaming at him. He ran for his life into a corner and hid. And just before the people got him back, he looked up and saw his deceased grandmother reaching, reach her hand down and grab him. The next thing my dad remembered, he was back in the hospital. He com- he's convinced he was temporarily in hell. I saw a field 
with trees on both sides, I could see water. I felt like there was an ocean on one side of the path. If you can imagine the fields that electrical winds go through, where there are no residents and they just clear the area for the power lines, it was like that. There was a tree in the middle and a wear-worn path around it. I was walking the path. It looked like an oak tree. It was very large, and a presence came to walk with me. I told it that I was ill, and that this seemed like a nice place. The entity, I'm not religious, so I don't know what it was, told me that I was not done, and that I should return, that I would be happy one day. It was so peaceful, beautiful, but the forest seemed dark and scary. The trees on both sides seemed a place I did not want to go. I only wanted to go toward the water. Then I saw a bright light, and I woke up in the ICU, which I am told is where people go during peekaboo accidents. (laughs) (laughs) I was taken for an emergency hysterectomy. They had to give me 11 units of blood. The night after surgery, I continually would stop breathing, and they told me so. They were expecting me to go into cardiac arrest at at any time. I remember seeing my dead aunt sitting on the bedside while I felt my spirit lifting out of the bed. She looked up at me and said, Damn it, my, my name. It's not your time yet. Now knock it out. Or, and Now knock it off. Sounds like something my aunt would do. <laughs> <laughs> Eight years old, I drowned at a local YMCA pool over in the deep end unsupervised. Suddenly awakened on the side of the pool, only then to see two lifeguards pulling my body out of the pool. CPR didn't work. Five minutes later, I get put on a stretcher and wheeled off in the ambulance. The gravity of the situation and realization made me stuck where I, wa- where I was while my physical body was headed to the hospital and probably the morgue. As that realization of death sunk in, this intense sensation of a warm motherly presence started to materialize. Had no idea who she was. She just insisted that I stay calm, and there was nothing to worry about. She made me count backward from five. At one, I woke up in the ambulance. It's it's worth nothing to me waking up was a sensation of being shot through a cannon from the pool where I drowned to down the street to the ambulance. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, afterlife is a strange, and I think we all consider it. It's one of those things that I think everybody at some point thinks about, well, what happens after you die? Yeah. I mean, oh, sure. I've got my own theories. I'm not, I'm not like dead set on exactly what yeah. happens, but. I'm kind of the same way. I do have a strong, like, my big belief in it, belief in it is more the consciousness on what you believed while you were alive. Yeah. Is how it's going to uh, exist, like. If you believed in Valhalla and Niflheim, and I think that's where your consciousness would take you, or your subconsciousness would take you. If you believed in heaven and hell, and you know, going to the pearly gates, I feel like that's kind of the thing that would, you know, your subconscious would take you there. I think it's all. I think the mind's just such a powerful thing. Whether or not an afterlife is a real thing, or if it's just something our consciousness puts us in, yeah. our subconscious puts us in. Um, but I think. Everyone's experience is more depending off of what they believed in. Yeah. 
But I mean, yeah, I've definitely sat there and thought, like, I wonder what what happens if it's if there is anything, if there's nothing. Yeah. Mm. I, I definitely I think about I it. I definitely don't really want to find out now. So. No, I, I'm 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 willing to stick it out a little <laughs> bit longer. Um, not really on my uh, short list of to dos. Yeah, I mean I want to <laughs> travel, but not that way. <laughs> but I mean, the closest thing I've had to a near death experience personally was like when I was two or three, I slipped in the pool and. I couldn't swim and I was sinking down and I do remember seeing it in third person, like watching my uncles jump into the pool and my uncle or uncles and dad and pop all jumping into the pool to get me. But I don't know if I see it in third person cause I'm recalling the memories of being told about it yeah, or if I actually witnessed this. Cause I also do have the visualization of sinking in the pool and watching the ladder slowly get further and further away from me. But I wasn't panicked. I was very calm and just like, just watching it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only near experience I have was thing three. Uh, was when I fell and cut my wrist and just cut my artery. And how, how I remembered of his, I remember seeing it in a third-person view of a man picking me up and setting me on the counter and then mom and you rushing into the room. Mm -hmm. But there was no man there, so I don't know. And I don't even know how you got if you guys found me on the floor, if I was standing or... I honestly don't remember. I think you were on the floor, but I think you were standing there. But I just remember someone picked... They were in like a flannel, red flannel shirt... Or like tucked in shirt, mm-hmm. jeans and boots. I mean, like, and they picked me up and like st- stood me up and like brushed brushed off my shoulders. Yeah, and said you're gonna be okay. And then mom running in screaming. Mm-hmm. And I guess I don't know if that's just something my mind just made up over time or from stories or what. But I mean, it was almost oh what twenty seven years ago. Yeah. So it's hard for me to remember exactly what happened. I remember... Like I remember the ride to the... Well, I remember parts of the ride to the hospital with the rags wrapped around my arm, my hand. And, and mom was having me hold the rags on yeah. your hand, yeah. And like, But I was in and out. Like, Yeah. I was losing consciousness. I know that because in the next... I don't remember getting to the hospital. I remember getting in the car driving down the street and the next thing I remember I'm on the table with the lights on me and it's bright. Yeah. I never dream in third person. We were talking about this in the dream episode and and even whenever like I'm looking back on memories that people have told me I never see them in the third person. I always see it first person. Now I do see in third person when I'm doing like my cult stuff like astral travel and things like or yeah, whatever, I, whatever you want to call it, active imagination. But I had, I dream a lot in third person. But um, oh, when I was about four or five, I was rolling around on the floor with a coin in my mouth, and it got lodged in my throat. And I remember most of that from the first person, like the panic of not being able to breathe, the flailing around and stuff, and then. Most of the rest of it I remember from the third person of watching my mom and her friend like smacking me on the back and squeezing on my chest and like putting their hands in my mouth and stuff like that. And 
And then I remember just being back in my body. Yeah. And that's probably the closest thing I've ever had to a near-death experience. Yeah. It's, I wonder how many people have had them and but have there, blown it off as memories. or just like memories yeah. of stories. Yeah. But there was no... I mean, I guess it went from like a horror feeling to like a peaceful feeling for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember being scared in my like recollection of or my vision of being picked up and stuff. Like, I don't think I was in pain. I don't remember being in pain. I don't mean being scared. I remember I was still crying, even like out of my body. But I think that was just because I remember the experience of falling. Yeah. But hmm. yeah. I, see, with mine, I've been told that I was much more angry or I was much more worried about the fact that Grandma, Uncle Donnie, and Papa all jumped in with their clothes on. Or Uncle Jim, maybe. I don't remember. One of the uncles yeah. jumped into the pool with their clothes on. I was more upset about that than anything else. And like I said, when I was, f- what I remember from floating down or sinking down, I guess you don't float down, sinking down was just like this peaceful, quiet, and just, I can still, I can still see the pool ladder floating further and further away from me. And I don't remember flail- flail- flailing or anything like that. Yeah. Just peacefully drifting down. Which is I don't know, interesting things. It's it's wonder, wonderful wonder. Oh, it's a wonder we've all survived as long as we have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if any of our listeners have past life experiences or have experienced any of the phenomena, let us know. It's like people always ask me, like, is is magic safe? Is occultism safe? Life isn't safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if any of those have corrections on any of our uh, afterlife mythologies or, you know, pronounce pronunciations or, you know, a mythology that you might know that we didn't cover, you know, share with us and let us know. And Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can do that on our Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at UMP Normalcy. You can also email us at umpnormalcy at gmail.com. Or you can submit it directly on our website at umpnormalcy.com. Uh, also, don't forget to go check out our brother and sister podcasts on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network, Faith Blind Council, Smuts Up, Ad Hoc History, Administrism, and Lexicult. And I will be on an episode of Smuts Up coming soon. Yay! Um, also, there was a paranormal podcast that Luxa just did an interview with called XV Planis. They informed her they were fans of our show. So, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your show. I haven't had a chance yet, but we'll have to reach out. Yeah, we'll have to do something together. So, reach out to us and. Yeah, yeah. If you hear this, email us or something. Yeah, we totally would love to. Yeah, we'll do an episode together Um, or something. We love working with other podcasts, especially podcasts that are just starting out. Yeah. Because it's. they, They helped us a lot when we started out to have other podcasts, to even just have the connection with to bounce ideas off kind of what our network has become. Yeah. Um, so yeah, reach out to us. If you've got a podcast that we didn't had, didn't mention, reach out to us. If you want to do a collaboration episode or want to interview one of us or all of us or yeah. whatever. Or if you just want, you know, some uh, tips and, you know, things that helped us get to a hundred and 
fifty some odd episodes. This is one hundred sixty one. One hundred sixty episodes. One hundred sixty one episodes. That I mean, hit us up on Discord and we can get into a live, like a actual chat room and talk, or yeah. we can just message back and forth. Either way. Yeah, totally. Um, <clears throat> also, don't forget to check out Parabox Monthly. Use the link in the description of this episode. And then use promo code paranormalcy at checkout to get 10% off your order and get your monthly paranormal t-shirt. And I think that's going to do it. I want to say oh. I, want, I want to do a shout out uh, to a friend of mine, Michael Martinez at Think Inc. here oh, in Oh, yes, Oklahoma. Michael, thank you. Uh, me and Amy and our two other, other, other siblings went and got uh, sibling tattoos today. Uh, I was say he does a great job. And uh, so if you're in the Norman area and need a tattoo, look up Think Inc. and give Michael a shout out or shout and see if we can help you. Yeah. I have my first tattoo now. Does what? that mean I'm an adult? You're an adult now. Amy. Yay! <laughs> You're rebellious now. Yes. Well, I was rebellious long <laughs> before the tattoo, but <laughs> now you have a mark to prove it. <laughs> now every time mom sees it, she can cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys for listening. We love you all so much. Remember to share us with your friends and family. If you don't like us, share us with those that you don't like, because maybe they will like us. And until next time, keep digging. Tuvahala! Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com.